The Colorado Business Roundtable unapologetically tells the story that business is a force for good in our community, featuring conversations with thought leaders from academia, business, community, and government. Welcome to A Seat at the Table with Debbie Brown. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for this episode of A Seat at the Table with Colorado Business Roundtable. This is Debbie Brown, and I'm excited to welcome Janine Davidson, the president of MSU Denver, to today's conversation. Welcome, Janine. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. What's fun about having you on today, Janine, is we really bring together thought leaders from business, community, and government. But the the fourth piece of that is we bring leaders in academia, particularly higher ed. So that's why you're so pivotal to this conversation, knowing that we're a force for good in the community and help work on economic issues. But partners like MSU Denver and your leadership here in Colorado to help grow our next workforce is obviously critical to that equation. So it's especially timely that we're talking about workforce today. Absolutely. Thanks. So for those who might not know uh, Janine Davidson, um, serving as president of MSU Denver since 2017, um, Janine has also been a national thought leader, not only in higher ed, but also on topics such as public service, U.S. foreign policy, and national security And um, Janine, you have such an interesting background that led you to be president and serve here in Colorado. Tell us a little bit more about your personal and professional journey and how you ended up here today. Sure. Well, my professional journey for a university president is a little bit unusual. Um, I did start off in the military as an Air Force pilot, and then I transitioned out of that into sort of the national security world. So I worked in the Pentagon. I worked at think tanks that hold Washington, D.C. world. But you know what happened was I was a political appointee. I was an Obama appointee in the Pentagon when the 2016 election happened and Donald Trump got elected, which meant I would obviously need to find a new job. But the energy in the country really made me think that I needed to pivot. I was thinking, like, how did I get to Washington so far into this bubble? There's all these things going on in the country that I was sort of not paying attention to. I've been focused on national security and foreign policy and um, hearing all these things about college isn't affordable anymore, you know, the workforce. And so I really started looking around for something purposeful to do. And MSU Denver was doing a presidential search and a couple of people said, hey, you should apply. So voila, (laughs) here I am, five and a half years later, yeah. And you're not the typical college president, right? Like you have so many other interesting experiences, but not that. Right. And some people will call me a non-traditional president. Um, I like to think of myself as a as sort of a hybrid. Um, I was in academia. I mean, I, you know, I have a PhD and I was on the tenure track at George Mason at a large Research One University. And um, when I was sort of called back to service, I went back into the Pentagon and then just never went back to um, the traditional academia. So also, I think like having led in the Pentagon at such a high level, I felt like I I really enjoyed that leadership piece. So to be able to combine, you know, leadership and academia and in a mission driven organization, it was like the perfect fit for me. Yeah, it's a culmination of all the all the leadership experiences you've had. And and just to go back, Janine, also to, to thank you for your service to our country, your continuing service to our country in a, a variety of capacities. But when I first heard you speak, you had just, I think, um, started this role and you were the keynote for the Colorado Women's Chamber event. And I remember thinking, who is this lady? Talking about your time um, 
in the military, flying airplanes and teaching and instructing, and then, of course, serving as, you know, the undersecretary of the United States Navy. I mean, that just blew my mind. I mean, what you've done is insane. Tell us just a little bit more about that, because I think probably lends itself to the type of leader you are today. Sure. Well, I mean, it's like anything, you know, it seems unusual, but when you're doing it, it doesn't, you know, I, I we say badass on a podcast is badass. Okay. To say, we'll find out (laughs) if you want. Yeah. Well, I mean, I went to college on an Air Force ROTC scholarship. I probably would not have gone to University of Colorado Boulder, which was out of state and too expensive if I had not been, you know, funded by the United States Air Force. And of course, once you get into that culture, it's like, well, I got to be a pilot because that's the that's what you got to do. And I was always kind of obsessed with flying. My dad was in the Navy. He was not a pilot, but we lived on an air base. And so there were all these fighter jets all the time. And I mean, I wanted to be a Navy fighter pilot. <laughs> and land on aircraft carriers and but they didn't let women do that and I, like I didn't even know that when I went for my Navy ROTC interview and said I wanted to be a F-14 pilot and they said they don't let girls do that so that was a kind of a bust um and so that's why I ended up in the Air Force flying cargo planes instead um lived around the world I lived in Japan during the first Gulf War and you know I did not deploy to the war because I was the only woman in my squadron and they wouldn't let me go but then I C-17s, which are very large uh, cargo planes out of Charleston Air Force Base and kind of all over the world. And then I got out. <laughs> Didn't want anything to do with the military. I thought I was going to go do some, like, I don't know, get a master's degree, work in international NGOs or something. But I got kind of sucked back into that whole foreign policy, national security stuff. And I went back up to Washington and I was working in think tanks and Then it just, you know, again, very sort of mission driven, being a civilian in the Pentagon was very different. It's uh, people think of it as, you know, I I think when I first got here, people thought I was a general or something. And I was like, no, 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 you don't understand. The (laughs) Pentagon is like the headquarters, the world headquarters of a, you know, $700 billion enterprise. It's highly bureaucratic. Mm -hmm. It's you know, you got to beg for your money on Capitol Hill every year. You got lots of regulation. You know, it's it's not unlike a university as it happens. The leadership piece is very similar. Well, and that's kind of where I was going with it. It's interesting to think about how your experiences around the world are affected you as a leader. And now you're able to sort of plant different dreams for the students that you're growing and encouraging and equipping. Yeah. You know, I would think having a variety of experiences makes you the leader you are to help encourage young adults to think about their lives in a certain way. So how has that translated for you being the head of a growing, thriving institution? Well, thanks for saying that, Deb. I mean, I hope that as as we all get to a certain age that our experiences have like accumulated into something valuable. Sometimes it just feels like a bit of a mishmash. But then when you, you get up into a complex organization, it sort of makes a lot of sense. I mean, that my experiences have really kind of helped in a lot of ways. And we have, we train pilots at our university. In fact, we have the number one aerobatic flight team in the country at MSU Denver. People don't know that. So I can, you know, I can relate to that. And I, I didn't know I can, that. So that's yes, cool to know. It's true. And we have a, we have a pilot shortage in America. And so really, you know, focusing in on partnering with United Airlines and Southwest Airlines and, and those kinds of things. But another thing that, that I, I'm very passionate about actually is public service. 
and a lot of people, I mean, your, your community is the business community, but they do a lot of work with governments. And, you know, really, it's a great sort of socioeconomic elevator. A lot of people don't know all the interesting things you can do in, in the public realm. So we have a public service institute. We're sending um, interns to Washington, D.C., because, uh, you know, most of the interns up on Capitol Hill come from a small group of very elite, expensive schools in the Northeast, even even in our own delegations offices. And I think that uh, our Coloradans, um, especially our low income, diverse Coloradans need to have those experiences. So that's really important to me. And then the other thing in, along that line is um, my, my emphasis on careers. And so this is where I think the Colorado community has really stepped up with us to partner. And we can talk a little bit more about that. But um, something I'm really passionate about is helping students find their way sort of faster. So you don't like, you know, muck around, choose a bunch of different majors and not actually get to where you need to go. We really want to partner with industry, um, have people earning while they're learning and um, finding their way. So that's another area of emphasis, I think, that I bring from my various experiences in my very long life. And very long. Yeah, watch out. We're, we might be told we're past our prime by, by commentators, but I don't believe it. About that, I am guessing that's what the career hub is, uh, connecting yeah. students to employers for a direct pipeline. Is that? Yeah. So it's a, the classroom to career hub, something that I'm really passionate about. You know, when we went to college, you and I, I think, had similar experiences. And I think a lot of your listeners maybe had similar experience. You go to college, you may or may not know what you want to major in. You kind of take a few classes. And then once you figure that out, you might get an advisor in your department that helps you get through the classes. And then if you're lucky, maybe there's a career center that can like dust off your resume and maybe you'll find an interview. We want the students to be able to engage with industry well, like left on the timeline of graduation. So, you know, when you arrive, we have people that can help you figure out what you should major in based on your interests. And then, you know, my goal is that, you know, 100% of our Roadrunner students will have some sort of what we call experiential learning along the way. Usually that's an internship or apprenticeship, but sometimes it's about doing um, undergraduate research. Exponentially more likely to stay in school and graduate if you have those experiences. And so the Classroom to Career Hub is internally facing helping the students figure that out, but externally facing with the industry partners. I have employers all the time come to me and say, oh, I want to get an intern. But like, what? Like, well, you didn't, shouldn't have to know the president of the university to get an intern. Like, you should no, be able to stop it's inefficient. Yeah. yeah. Come to our Classroom to Career Hub. Connect with our industry navigators who will help you as an employer navigate the university to kind of figure out how to do it. And a lot of, yeah. you know, it's easy for a university, easier to partner with a big company. And we do that. We partner with the Lockheeds and the Comcasts and, you know, the DeVitas. But um, so many people are working for smaller companies. And these smaller companies, you know, they might they don't have the big HR departments. And so we want to work with them, too. And that's where when we have a like a single stop shop, the classroom to career hub and the industry partnerships, we can work with um, the industry that way. And, and we've talked a lot about industry alignment the last couple of years, particularly with changes in, you know, some of the extra federal money coming. How do we become more industry aligned? Do you feel like you have certain gaps where you would want the private sector to lean in more? How can how can we, you know, and, and yeah. you mentioned some of the companies that I know who have really good partnerships already with your institution and what you're doing. 
where where do you have additional needs that we could perhaps sure help? so let me let me walk you through something that I had a big realization. We went out, a bunch of college presidents and chancellors went out a couple years ago and visited LinkedIn headquarters, right? And we talked to the, they have these big data analytics people and they were like, you know, you know, first they said two things. First, they said that something like 60, 63% of quote, entry level jobs require three years of experience, which is kind of a paradox, right? So that means you really got to get some experience while you're still in school. That really makes me double down on these internship ideas. And the second thing was they said, we realize that there is not really a talent gap in this country. There's a network gap. And what that means is like this big, you know, all these Silicon Valley companies in particular, they go to the same, you know, three or four elite schools, which only have like a couple thousand grads anyway. Um, When there's like schools like MSU Denver or Cal State San Jose that are just cranking out diverse, gritty, first generation students, but those students, because they're first in their family ever to go to college, which 58% of our students are first in their family to ever go to college, they don't have moms and dads and aunts and uncles that can help them get that first internship. So what I love about the Colorado community of business leaders is they get to be that network for my students. And the way they get to be that network is through that classroom to career hub. And so what can business leaders do? They can engage with us in the classroom to career hub for that kind of thing. They can also though recognize that these students are not your elite mom and dad paying for their college. So any kind of scholarship help you can give obviously helps. And obviously if they're already your employees, like they're working while they're going to school, it's going to pay off for you. That's like professional development. But the third thing is flexibility on the work life, right? We have really flexible programming, online, hybrid, in-person, really sitting down with your valued employees and saying, you know, what kind of schedule do you need to make this happen? I mean, it's It'll take a couple of years, but you're going to have, if you want to invest in your own workforce pipeline, helping financially, but also helping as a good mentoring employee or employer also really helps. Yeah, I, I think about Colorado as being so unique and you might feel the same way, Janine, in that we're all in this together. I feel like it's different in different parts of the country, but Colorado is unique in that sense. Like, let's lean in, let's let's help each other. And, you know, to me, that's part of your leadership, too, with that with that mm-hmm. classroom at Career Hub. So we'll help direct people there. I think that's a great awesome. impact. You've got all the big companies or a bunch of them. But how else? You know, that's another way for people to look forward. Um, yeah. think well, we about, have the programming, you know, but we're we're also yeah. we're also trying to build out a, a physical space where we can actually have those convenings. So that's another part of our um, our actual our, our massive campaign, our fundraising campaign that we're doing this year. So um, that's another way folks can help if they want to help with that project. That sounds good. Big picture. I've got a couple other specific questions for you, but while we're on this train of thought, big picture around higher ed in the state. Um, what are you seeing? And I'm not talking about challenges and opportunities quite yet. What are you seeing in the next five, 10 years for higher ed, whether it's MSU Denver or higher ed in general? Where, what does the recovery look like? What's, what does the future look like for higher ed? Oh, there's a lot of things. Um, I think for the elite schools, you know, your selective institutions, expensive schools, they're going to double down on that country club environment. We're not going to worry about them. But the vast majority of Americans go to public universities. And I think we are nationally and especially in Colorado at an inflection point. 
kind of a dangerous inflection point. Last year, all the presidents and chancellors of the universities and institutions of higher education in Colorado wrote a letter to the legislature and said, listen, we're at a dangerous inflection point. Magic doesn't happen in Colorado compared to other states. I mean, we are 49th in the country in terms of how much we invest. And it matters. And here's how it matters. Maybe you're the type of person who thinks that education should be a private good. That's okay for you if you want to send your kid to a private school or whatever. But, you know, if you're an employer, if you are a civic leader, um, if you're a voter and part of this democracy, or if you care about a competitive Colorado, you'll recognize that every other state in the union and our competitors overseas are spending government dollars to promote their talent pipeline. They're investing in their next generation. In Georgia, if you graduate from high school, you can go to college for free. Florida, one of our number one competitor in the aerospace industry is dumping money into higher ed. We are 49th in the country and we are losing our talent. It's becoming cheaper to actually send your kid to another school in another state because those states have public funds that they will discount your rate. My own niece is going to go to school out of state for the same cost, if not a little bit less than to have gone to our flagship. Yeah, that I is can, not I can what we want. You know, I had uh, two of my kids went to college. They both went out of state. And frankly, it was partly an economic decision on behalf of our family. Absolutely. And unfortunately, so I know that that's that's probably one of the biggest. They also wanted to get away from home, to be fair. But that's that's simply the case with my fair. But but it still was economically a good decision. So I get that from just my own consumer mindset that lends me to, I was going to ask you what one of your biggest challenges is um, for MSU Denver as the leader. And I know you and I have talked about it before is that funding piece and who makes a difference? How do you compete for talent? How do you compete against other states? Is that your number one issue is trying to help move the needle on that funding? So the resources piece is really, really problematic because when uh, the state gives up on higher ed, tuition goes up, students flee, we lose our we lose our future. So I really worry about Colorado remaining competitive. And I also worry about the future of our own students. I mean, there are students who can't afford to leave because they have obligations here. So they're not going to go to another state. So that's the first thing. But there's another thing that really hits schools like mine. So we're an access institution, which means by law, by mission, by passion, we admit anybody who has a high school degree. So what that means is, you know, maybe you went to a a quote, not so college prep high school. You're not necessarily ready. Um, We'll still take you. You still might become a Rhodes Scholar. Like it's just kind of an amazing place, right? Got an opportunity um, to redefine it. But what's happening in America right now is my second biggest challenge is this negative narrative about higher ed. Now, if I was like, you know, in a Dr. Strangelove movie, I would think it was an evil communist plot or something to like get people to not go to college. But they're literally saying things like it doesn't pay off, which isn't true. It's too expensive. It isn't true. It's out of touch. Not totally true. Like all good conspiracy theories has a little bit of truth in it. Yeah, there are people that are graduating with tons and tons of debt, but they're going to like the super elite schools. The debt numbers are driven up by graduate school, medical school, law school. So the average debt for someone in a public university, for people who even have debt and over half don't have any debt, is $25,000. You spend less than that on your car. 
So are you going to invest $25,000 in your own human capital? I sure as hell hope so. So let's stop telling people that they can't afford it. You got high school students and all their parents who won't even open the application website because they just presume it's not for them, it's unaffordable, or it's out of touch. So we're just, we're in a race to the bottom with respect to our human capital in this country if we keep telling young people not to go to college. I hadn't really heard it framed quite that way. So that's, that is shocking. If people don't realize it's a really open choice that changes lives. So um, that's, right. that's pretty shocking. Let's, let's flip it because we're, ta- we've been talking about challenges. There's a lot of challenges, which I'm sure takes up the majority of your headspace, but tell me yeah. more about uh, an opportunity that you're excited sure. about. Well, I am all really excited that the business leaders are starting to wake up to the idea that we can do some really interesting partnering. There's a lot of um, innovation happening in that space um, with internships, apprenticeships. I'll be going on a trip with uh, the governor and some other business leaders in May to look at how they do it in Switzerland um, with respect to apprenticeships. There's a lot of interesting work being done to blur the line between K-12 and college. So a lot of our students are now doing what's called concurrent enrollment, where while they're still in 11th or 12th grade, they're taking college classes. So they show up to college already with a bunch of credits. That's super cool. It's also cool because, again, so many students who don't have parents who went to college, doing the concurrent enrollment kind of, you know, debunks all the mystique and so they're they're feeling a lot more ready for college. So that blurring of the line is another really cool thing. And then technology is a super cool thing. Um, I think a lot of people learned during COVID that online didn't suck as much as they thought it would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we and, like you know, that. Like a hybrid thing is okay, right? It's it yeah, lends itself yeah. well to different types of learners at, at the end of Absolutely. the day. Absolutely. Different types of learners and people with different lives. And so we see a lot of students who are like, okay, I can take that one online. I can take that one in person. Um, some of them prefer in person, but online fits their life better because they're working, they have kids. So we want to be able to provide lots of different options for our students. We want to wrap our model around their lives instead of saying, hey, everybody, stop everything you're doing for four solid years, take out a ton of loans and just go to college. We want people to be able to do it a little bit at the same time. It might take them a little bit longer to graduate, but then you're going to graduate with less debt. You're going to graduate with job experience. So I think that's a that's a new, more exciting model. And also we're looking at things like virtual reality and alternative reality. So you can do things in the classroom, the virtual classroom, that you can't do. Like you can do open heart surgery and kill the patient and learn <laughs> from that. <laughs> kill, the, kill the fake patient, right? The AI patient. Good, good. A virtual patient, right? Which reminds me of being a pilot. I love that because, you know, we can learn and we can we can practice emergencies. We can crash the plane. We don't want to crash the plane, but that's how you learn. And so there's a lot of innovation happening in that space that we're also looking into in the hospitality and healthcare, um, cyber, our cybersecurity program, all looking at some of those programs. So, so there's some interesting stuff happening. You know, higher ed is, uh, it's innovating. Hello. It's innovating. And then back to kind of your background and your, your diversity of experiences, right. Of not being afraid to change, not being afraid of innovation. So I love kind of ending on that positive note. A couple other odd things, Janine, while we still have you, is we started this uh, sort of lightning round section that I think is just fun for people to get a chance to know you better. And, um, you know, who are listening to the podcast want to hear some some key lightning round questions. So here we go. Are you ready? All right. Sure. sure. All right. 
your favorite powerhouse lunch or happy hour location? I love the wine bar on Larimer. It's kind of like in certain parts of the year, it becomes my uh, my auxiliary office. Okay. <laughs> like, well, I've, never been. Happy hour. <laughs> I've never been, so I'm going to write that down. That oh, sounds yeah, we'll good. There. Yeah. <laughs> What's your best way to relax? I love getting outside outdoors, hiking, right. You know, cycling, skiing. If I have a day, a huge day outside, I'm just totally recharged. That's great. Um, your favorite binge could be a book, a podcast, a Netflix series. COVID definitely helped us hone our binge watching skills. (laughs) My husband and I are kind of addicted to the whole Yellowstone 1883, 1923 series. So yeah, we, we, we definitely curl up on that. Absolutely. And then the last one is, what's your best advice that you've received to help you get a seat at the table? I'll tell you the best advice I ever got was from one of my old bosses. Um, her name's Michelle Flournoy. She was a big leader in the Pentagon. And she told me early on, you know, that your your career can be like an hourglass. Like in the beginning, you want to like learn lots of different things, but then you need to kind of home in on something that you really care about and make that make yourself an expert in something. So in a thought leader. So when people say, we need to have a blue ribbon commission on X. That will be, we'll ask Janine or Debbie to be on that because you're known for that thing. And that's how you get your seat at the table. And then you can broaden back out again. And that's kind of what, how I did my career, if you think about it. But that trying to find an expertise, an expertise and work really hard at it and just be that person that is value added to that particular area is the way you get your seat. Perfect. I love that. And with that, I know we're running out of time, but just want to thank you again, um, Janine, for joining us on this episode of A Seat at the Table. Thank you. And thanks for everything you do at at, um, COBRT, Cobert. Um, You guys are doing some really great things, bringing everybody together. Really appreciate it. A Seat at the Table with Debbie Brown is a production of the Colorado Business Roundtable. You can find this episode, a listing of our upcoming events, and more information about our organization at COBRT.com.